0: hello everyone and welcome to our webinar series on listen to the experts targeted temperature management this particular series of uh, talks is where we address key questions and current challenges in the field of therapeutic hypothermia and targeted temperature management Now, my name is dalton dietrich i'm a professor in the department of neurological surgery at the university of miami miller school of medicine and have been working in the field of therapeutic hypothermia for a long time. And uh, today I have the pleasure of uh, introducing our special guest. We're gonna discuss, discuss therapeutic hypothermia. Uh, Dr. Beringer is a professor and, and chair, Department of Emergency Medicine at the Medical University of Vienna, uh, University Hospital in Vienna. What a beautiful city. I love Vienna. I can't wait to get back there soon, Dr. Beringer, but thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you very much. Very excited. Fantastic. Our overall theme today is best practices and early induction of temperature management in our patient populations. Dr. Behringer and I have talked about some of the things we want to discuss today, and the first has to do with this question of what is the basis for utilizing therapeutic hypothermia and targeted temperature management in our patient population? So, uh, Dr. Berenger, could you... Talk about uh, your systemic review that you did on animal studies that I, because I do animal studies, thought was very important to the field of uh, translational science.
1: Yes, you know, all these discussions about uh, which temperature is the best temperature for our treatment of our patients, uh, as you know, we don't, we shouldn't use anymore the term targeted temperature management. Uh, The last guideline said we should not use this term because it's too much related to the studies of Nielsen. So I prefer to keep the expression hypothermia or normothermia. Mm -hmm. So when all this discussion was about which temperature is the best temperature and the two TTM or the TTM1 study came out uh, and then the recommendations changed to having a temperature range of 32, 36 degree, I was thinking, you know, all the animal studies, I'm aware of, they all show in one direction. And uh, I was thinking, well, if all these animal studies show in one direction, maybe we should do a, a meta-analysis to systematically investigate this issue. And there was one other systematic review out about animal studies, but these, this meta-analysis included all ischemic models. So also four-vessel, two-vessel uh, models They included also studies which looked only at the histology. And we decided we want to do a a, a, a meta-analysis, which is more clinically focused, meaning we included only cardiac arrest models, so no ischemic for two-vessel disease, uh, ischemia. And our outcome parameter, which should only be neurologic outcome, no histology. Because as you know for yourself, we don't know what does it mean, how it translates a histologic damage to a functional damage. Maybe, you know, maybe some, some part of the brain is, is, is injured, but still, if you can walk, eat and drink and speak, it doesn't matter if some parts of the brain maybe are ischemic. So based on that, and I remember on my on my time with Peter Safa in Pittsburgh, where we always discussed, what does it mean to have a histologic damage? We decided to include only studies where the outcome of functional outcome was reported, either overall performance category or neurologic deficit scores. So this was the, the difference to the other meta-analysis, which was published a few months before our, or one year before our meta-analysis was published. So this was the one difference. And, and if when we looked at, at only cardiac arrest models, I think we had approximately 40 studies with approximately 60 comparisons, because some studies compared more than one or more than two temperatures, we found a very, very strong uh, impact of temperature. So literally, all animal studies showed in the same direction. Some were not statistically significant, but that's the you know that's the sense why we do meta-analysis uh, to have a bigger power. Mm-hmm. So if you combine all the studies this was a very strong effect of temperature. And then we looked if there's a difference in the different temperature grades, if there's a difference between 36, 35, 34, 33. And uh, we found, especially in large animals, there was an influence of the temperature on the effect of temperature per se, meaning that with each lower degree of lower temperature,
0: the effect was stronger. That's so consistent with, um, you, back in 1980, 87, we wrote a paper where we looked at the importance of small variations in brain temperature in a model of transient global ischemia. And that um, that that paper now has over 2000 citations that continues to be cited, which is fantastic, right? Dr. Behringer? I could pick up, I did all the histology and all this uh, cell cans, I could pick up a slide at that time because of, the tissue and the edematous processes were occurring in an H&E slide, I could tell you exactly what temperature it was. I could tell you before I actually look, broke the code if it was 33 versus 36 or 39. It was so dramatic that um, from that day on, I knew that basically, and this was intra-ischemic temperature, and of course we have some issues with post-ischemic uh, cooling, but um, I, I knew it would be dramatic. So I'm glad that your, um, your systemic review brought that out again, because it has to be re-emphasized, right? As we move forward at clinical trials, clinical trials are tough. Patient heterogeneity and all these other things and cooling strategies and meeting the mark in a timely fashion, you have to go back to say, what was the premise, the scientific premise for actually moving this forward? So I think your study in, in the animals was extremely uh, important to the field. Thank you very much for that. Oh, thanks, thanks. Yeah,
1: I, I totally agree with
0: you. Yeah. And, and, and
1: considering the histology, as you said, yes, we could once show when we looked at the, at the Peter Safa animals that there is a rough correlation between histology and functional outcome, but not like a very good correlation. So that's why we excluded studies reporting only on histology because mm-hmm. it's different, it's also difficult to, com- to make a meta analysis with different studies, with different kind of reporting of histology.
0: That's difficult, but neurologic outcome, that's kind of uniform reporting. Good. And you've mentioned Peter Saffer twice, so I've got to tell you my story on Peter Saffer. One day I'm, I hear a knock on my door in my office and I'm sitting under the microscope, I'm looking at slides and I turn my head and it's uh, Peter Saffer there. He goes, uh, Dalton, I wanted to come to Miami and meet you and, and, and tell you basically, that you know your work seems to be really interesting, but you but it's in rats, and we don't really know how rats translate into humans. <laughs> so he said, "What are you working on?" And I said, uh, "Oh, I'm I'm, lo- I'm writing a paper that shows that if you um, if you cool after injury, you don't get um, long-term survival of the CA1 hippocampus; you get tra- uh, transient." He, so we sat down and discussed all this, and of course that brought on you know longer cooling periods and things of this nature. But that was my day with Peter Saffer. And I will, it was special I'll never never forget it. Um, but anyway, what a great person, what a great man. Okay, so we'll move on. Um, the other thing that I really enjoyed reading and following was your a letter to the editor uh, in resuscitation in response to Dr. Uh, Granfield's systemic review that was published also in that journal. And I think that particular uh, paper um, showed no improvements in neurological outcome you know, when you're comparing 32, 33 with, uh, with normal thermia. And that uh, led to changes in the guidelines, which you, you commented on. And you had a couple of um, issues with that analysis. So maybe we can talk about that.
1: Yes, uh, thank you very much for bringing this up because I think that's a, that's a thing. When Granfield did his meta-analysis, actually he split it the analysis and he made two analyses. One analysis was in studies reporting the favorable outcome at 30 days or at discharge and in another analysis he included studies reporting the outcome at 90 or 180 days. Now not everybody investigating temperature effect uh, on outcome reported both times. So there are studies which reported only a discharge or 30 days, and there are studies which reported only at 90 or 180 days, and there are studies which reported the outcome on all these time uh, events or time slots. And interestingly, the studies which show the benefit of temperature or 33 degrees versus normal thermia they are either in one meta-analysis or in the other Mm meta-analysis, while the studies, which report no difference between 33 and 36 degree, Mm -hmm. uh, or 37 degree, they are represented in both studies. Mm -hmm. So this means the studies showing no benefit are overrepresented in these two meta-analyses. And uh, another thing is, if you split studies, so if you have fewer studies in your meta-analysis, you decrease the power of the meta-analysis. So this means you need much... So so you you won't see a difference, even if there is a difference, because you don't have enough patients included. And uh, so that is the reason, probably, why in these two meta-analyses, split it by outcome at discharge or 30 days, and the other one outcome at 90 or 180 days, there was no difference, well, there was a signal of better performance of 33 degrees, a Mm -hmm. strong signal, but not statistically significant. And uh, there's another study from our center, not with temperature, but with critical care medicine, showing that actually the outcome doesn't change much over time. So it it doesn't matter if you report the outcome at, at discharge 30 day, 90 days or 180 days, there's not a big difference. So there's no need to split the analysis in these two groups and having fewer studies in each group. So you can do one analysis with outcome at discharge or 30 or 90 or 180 days. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, we did this, uh, we extended uh, meta-analysis, which was published in the Cochrane some years ago. We added the new studies And still, if you put all the studies together, we found a statistically significant effect of a temperature of 33 degrees versus 36 or um, 37 degrees. And uh, this is only a letter, but uh, as I know, one of the authors of the Cochrane or some of the others I know pretty well, and they will soon publish an updated Cochrane meta-analysis where they put all the
0: studies together. Well, that's a fantastic Result of your letter to the editor. I mean, that's gonna make a big, big difference in the field because uh, as you know, since uh, TTM1 and TTM2 have come out, those studies, there's a lot of groups that are are no longer even managing temperature in many times. And the, the number, the mortality is increasing, the number of uh, fevers in patients is increasing. so. This is, a, this is really um, an issue where we have to look at the data, as you've done, and be very analytical about it, and, and then start uh, the, the, um, the discussions around the world to try to uh, bring it back to where the best thing for our patients, which gets back to the next question I wanted to ask you about in your, uh, in your, your uh, own personal feelings. This issue of patient heterogeneity, that injury severity, in in cardiac arrest patients may make a difference in terms of how we would approach a a therapeutic protocol and what level of cooling would we uh, initiate. And people are looking at EEG and in biomarkers and and things like that. So I was wondering in your practice, how do you deal with heterogeneity or are you uh, routinely cooling your, your, your patients down to 32, 33 to start with and then making clinical decisions based on how they're doing?
1: Uh, that, that's, that's a very good point, and I think you're totally correct. One one size does not fit all. And mm-hmm. probably, probably, I only can hypothesize, there is the need for a different temperature dose. I, I call it dose, temperature dose, mm-hmm. depending on the insult. Like we, we showed a couple of years ago, Testory uh, was the first author, that there has to be at least a no-flow time of longer than three minutes. Mm-hmm. that hypothermia exerts its beneficial effect if the no flow time is less there's no was no effect of hypothermia you know if if, if you don't have a damage you don't need a treatment and the same probably is if you have a no flow time of 20 minutes and the brain is dead you can do whatever you want you can give holy water chicken soup whatever you want you won't help anymore because the dead the brain is too damaged so you need this this spot and uh, there was very recently a study from I can't remember now the name was the first author work, but they showed very nicely, depending on the severity index, severity number, that only the ones which have this, this, this in the middle severity they benefit from hypothermia. If if the if the damage is too low, no help. If the damage is too severe, no help. So we, we know this now from retrospective studies. How to translate this into the, the practice? Well, so far, unfortunately, we don't have any marker on which we can online during the treatment titrate our treatment. We can't titrate the temperature. We can't say, well, we need now instead of 35 degrees, we need 33 and we don't stop at 24, we continue for 40 or even 72 hours. As in brain injury, I mean, you are the brain injury man, you know, you can titrate the ICP with temperature. In cardiac arrest patients, we don't have is. Marker. We don't have this this holy marker. We need one, but we don't have. So from my perspective, to be sure, at least in our institution, we cool every patient after cardiac arrest, except it doesn't get any intensive care. Like if it was a DNA or AND order, or we say, no, we, we, we don't continue our treatment. We stop, then we stop everything, but we don't do, you know, a little bit of ICU. Either we do full-blown ICU, including temperature management, Mm -hmm. or we stop treatment, all treatment. Mm -hmm. So to be sure, because we don't really harm the patient with uh, temperature control. There are no major adverse effects of the temperature. I know if the patient becomes bradycardic, great. It's even better for the patient. If the patient becomes hypokalemic, you substitute uh, potassium. So there is literally, as far as I know, no major adverse events of temperature. So just to be sure to help every patient, if he is after cardiac resuscitated and remains comatose, he will get the
0: treatment. Excellent. You're the the chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine. So you treat other patients as well, other different types of patients, traumatic brain injury, spinal cord injury, all kinds of different uh, so, what do you do for those patients? Is is um, is t- temperature modification involved in their therapies as well?
1: Uh, well, you don't know the Austrian system. <laughs> in Austria, we have I am the chair of an emergency department, but our emergency department is restricted to non-trauma cases. The oh. trauma cases go to the trauma emergency department, where the traumatologists uh, <laughs> treat trauma emergencies. You're loving, I know, it's totally stupid. I'm fighting for a specialty emergency medicine in Austria for a long time. Only three countries are left in Europe which don't have the specialty, one is Austria. Uh, It's stupid, but I can't answer your question because I don't treat these patients, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry.
0: Okay, Okay, very good, very good. Something that I just always ask people, we've got a multi-center trial going on now in uh, therapeutic hypothermia in severe cervical spinal cord injured patients. And uh, we recruited about 70 patients. Now we're combining, uh, we're we're comparing normothermia with hypothermia, 33 degrees, 33, 34 degrees, for 48 hours, and then a slow rewarming phase on the third hour. And so I'm always looking for you know other people. And of course, the, the traumatic brain injury, it's such a complicated uh, problem right now. And uh, the, the uh, we're still working on that. We have no idea, but. Uh, it's interesting as you're you're emphasized, you know, no fits, uh, no, no, um, no one cooling uh, method out. Yeah, fits all. Uh, same thing with uh, neonatal epoxia encephalopathy, uh, that they're finding out in these really infants that you have mild, you have moderate, and you have severe. And it's that middle group, right, that you can really make the big difference in their, their lives. So we just got to continue to figure out these sur- uh, surrogate markers or something that we can evaluate, but I like your idea, you know, attack it early, cool, um, down to 30, 33, 34, or whatever, and then over 24 hours, then may, maybe you can make a decision, um, in terms of bringing the temperature up a little bit more slowly or something of that nature. So anyway, a lot to, a lot to think about. Um, how about, uh, cooling methodologies? Do you have any, um, strong opinions on how best to cool? I think it's not only the, the,
1: how to cool, but when to cool.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The, of, of utmost importance to cool early. From the animal studies, and you know the same from, we know it's the earlier they cool, the better it is. So when you look at this recent clinical studies, TTM1, TTM2, four hours before randomization, three hours after randomization, I would think, what the hell are they doing all these hours? <laughs> you know, looking at the patient,
0: Yeah,
1: three hours for randomization four hours for randomization. So I think of most importance and the animals and pathophysiology and cell culture, they all say the same thing, you know, you have to cool early. If you look at retrospective data, there is some, you know, not a clear thing because you never know. Maybe someone cooled very fast because the brain was so damaged. Mm -hmm. So there's no influence on, on speed, but there is a hint some studies show, it's two things. One is the time to start cooling and the cooling speed, these are two different things. Mm-hmm. So if, if I look at our hacker study, we cooled very early, very early, like at least not later than one hour after the insult, we started to cool. Then the temperature went down slowly, but at least we started. And there's one retrospective study from Korea showing that with, with every uh, half hour delay, the chance for worse outcome increases by 10% animal studies show the same. So I think most important is to cool early. So when to cool early, I think the best would be to start already in the pre-hospital field by the paramedics. Now, as as you know, there are some clinical studies comparing intravenous cold fluid with placebo or with normal temperature infusion. Most prominent study by Kim a couple of years ago, published in JAMA, and they didn't show a difference between pre-hospital cooling and in-hospital cooling. So why? Because first of all, not all patients received the total amount of fluid, and it was up to the hospitals to continue cooling in the hospital, and 30% of the centers did not continue cooling. So how can you say that pre-hospital cooling doesn't work? this was the one and then there's the studies by Bernard from Australia who also compared pre-hospital IV cooling with normal temperature and what they show was you can cool the temperature a little bit I think they they, they degrees the temperature pre-hospital about one degree but when they started then in the hospital with the treatment the temperature was up again so in the hospital the two groups had the same temperature so temperature a little bit down then up and then con- continue cooling. That's not good cooling. How can you expect an effect of a therapy if you don't apply the therapy? And if if you look at the target temperature, target temperature was 33 degrees in this study and the temperature curve and the variation never reached 33 degrees. So none of the patient actually had target temperature during the hospital treatment. So how can you say that the treatment doesn't work if you don't apply it? So these two studies, though they showed no difference in pre-hospital cooling, they had major limitations. And then, as you know, in the guidelines, they say there's a class three recommendation, I think, that one should not use cold fluids Mm pre-hospital because of the whatever, they cite one study, they cite the Kim study, Mm -hmm. because Kim, as we talked, showed that in the first x-ray patients more patients had a pulmonary edema than the ones who did not receive cold fluid which resolved after the second x-ray the second x there was no difference in in, in pulmonary edema and based on this recommendation the recommendation is don't use cold iv pre-hospital so i think this recommendation is based on a very very weak evidence and when patients come to our emergency department or when I was in Germany before, all our patients receive immediately when they come into the emergency department two liters of cold fluid, except they are in pulmonary edema. But the least patients, or not many patients, are in pulmonary edema after cardiac arrest. The opposite, they need volume. If you treat cardiac arrest patients, you know that they do better if they receive fluid. And there are some retrospective studies also showing this, that. Patients after cardiac arrest, they need a volume bolus, most of them, not all, but most of them, they need volume anyhow. So this would be one thing pre-hospital to cool with cold fluid, despite the recommendations of the guidelines saying don't use it. But this recommendation is posed, is, is very weak. So in the hospital, we do it. So once you're in the hospital, Uh, What you should know is if you give cold fluid, you should give it with a pressure bag. If you only let it drip, you won't decrease the temperature. You need a pressure bag to really infuse these two liters very quickly. And you should start with the second cooling method while you give the cold fluid. If you wait, we saw and we published this, the temperature goes up after one hour. After one hour, this, this temperature drop with cold fluid is gone patient warms up so you should start with the second controlled method with the feedback at the very beginning when you start with cold fluid same time start with a with a device and this device should have a feedback system if you look at the data there are some publications showing that if you don't use a feedback device the temperature goes up down up down up down very difficult to maintain So if you use a a device with an automatic temperature feedback, you don't have a headache to look at the temperature, it's stable, and you don't have to look at it. Now, which temperature method you should use to cool with the temperature feedback? There are basically two, at least in our country. There is endovascular cooling uh, with a a catheter, with a balloon catheter, and there's surface cooling. We did a a network meta-analysis looking at the effect of these different temperature methods. Why did we do this network meta-analysis? Because there are former meta-analyses who looked at surface cooling versus endovascular cooling. And these or two of these meta-analyses show the benefit of endovascular cooling versus surface cooling. But I think this was not fair because surface cooling, you have to differentiate between surface cooling with temperature feedback. Mm -hmm. and surface cooling without temperature feedback. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a feedback, of course, temperature goes up and down. That's not good. But if you have surface cooling with temperature feedback, I would assume has the same effect on outcome as endovascular cooling. This was my hypothesis. Mm -hmm. So we did a network meta-analysis comparing endovascular cooling, surface cooling with temperature feedback, and surface cooling without temperature feedback. And we did this, but what we could show is that uh, endovascular cooling might be the cooling method with the best chance to have good neurologic outcome. So there seems to be some advantage of the endovascular cooling. Maybe it's because the temperature control is even tighter than surface cooling with temperature feedback. We don't know, but at least when we look at our data, that's what they show that the endovascular cooling might be the the best cooling for neurologic outcome has the highest chance of good outcome
0: what a great discussion a lot of studies out there but you really have to do some digging to really dissect the data to find out exactly what's been done correctly or what actually they're looking at and this feedback system with or without is is, as you said really makes a big difference in terms of the ability to really um, uh, maximize your effect on on temperature cooling in, in these patient populations. And early, yeah, I remember that chem paper very well, because everyone thought that, you know, if you could start the hypothermia as the patient's going to the uh, emergency room, the hospital, uh, that would get you started uh, in terms of the cooling strategy and continue it along. The physician obviously would make that decision when they got to the emergency room, but it really did stop the ability. In fact, we're now working on a, a nanodrug, intranasal nanodrug that could bring down brain temperature in an emergency vehicle. And then you get it to the hospital, and the treating physician makes the decision exactly what they want to continue continue to do in terms of um, uh, therapeutic hypothermia. So, a lot of great things. And um, so, anyway, I think we're coming to the end of our, our, our talk. Uh, anything else you wanted to add before we say goodbye to everyone?
1: Well, well the last point was you mentioned those early cooling, uh, you know, the intra arrest cooling. Uh, which was published recently up with this cooling device, putting cold perfluorocarbon into the nose. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, what 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 in the, in the preliminary studies they didn't show a difference, but when they did the the post hoc analysis, that these patients with a very where this they started early and patients with VF, mm-hmm. they had improved neurologic outcome. So I think there is there is an effect. You just have to find the right patients. And even interest, you have to be well fast.
0: That, that's that's great. I haven't read that paper. Did they do the cooling uh, by uh, by cold saline? No, no. Cold
1: perfluorocarbon oh. was blown. Oh, uh, okay. So they could. They, they had two studies. One was a feasibility study many years ago by Marit Kastren, mm-hmm. and now they did a Center study where overall they didn't show an effect. But if you look only at the VF patients and the one who were cooled early intra arrest, they had a significant improvement in neurologic outcome. So another signal or another sign that early and good cooling improves outcome.
0: Excellent, excellent. That's fantastic. Okay, well, uh, again, uh, I wanna thank uh, Dr. Uh, Wilhelm Berenger. He's the uh, chair in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University Hospital, Vienna. And i uh, also like to acknowledge uh, Mary Ann Liebert, Publishers uh, for the Journal of Therapeutic Hypothermia and Temperature Management, as well as Zoll Medical for providing an educational grant to support this webinar. Dr. Beringer, thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking to you today, and I'm sure people will enjoy hearing our presentation. Again, my name is Dalton Dietrich, and I look forward to the next uh, podcast. Until then, everyone stay cool. Thank you very much. Take care.